This is Lisa Henderson, your host for Daring Parenting, and we're delighted you could join us today. If you want to hear some of our other podcasts, you can go to daringparenting.com and click on podcast and you'll find out more about what we're doing. A daring parent is a parent who's willing to be courageous, step outside, of the boundaries by being creative and also setting very clear boundaries for their kids. So this show is intended for people with children ages five to 25, and it actually even applies for younger and older children. I'm happy to welcome back one of my all-time favorite guests, Kate Jackson, who is the founder of Jabula Dog Academy. Now, if you'd like to go to their website, it's jabula, J-A-B-U-L-A, dogs.com. Kate's got a very impressive resume, so I'll just hit the high points. She's a certified dog trainer. She is a member of the International Association for Canine Professionals. She also belongs to the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants. She volunteers all over the Atlanta area for shelters and rescue organizations. And one of the ways you also might know her is she's called in to be a behavioral consultant on national television shows for people that need her level of expertise for behavior and training. So Kate, some of our listeners did not get to hear the previous interviews that I did with you. So would you mind talking a little bit about what motor patterns are in dogs and a little bit about the neural pathways in the brain? A motor pattern is a genetically determined movement that a dog does. So for example, a border collie has the motor pattern to eye stalk. An eye stalk is a genetic pattern that is built into the dog to perform a certain task. What is an eye stalk? An eye stalk is where a border collie would drop its head very low and stare really hard at a sheep to make it move. So a motor pattern is inbred, that's genetic. What about neural pathways? A neuropath is something that can develop through repetition, through conditioning, through repeating a behavior over and over again. It's also something that you can interrupt and create a new pathway for with enough repetition. Can you give us an example of something, a behavior that we might want to interrupt? So if a dog has developed a behavior of route patterning, for example, a dog that has maybe been in a, in a bad situation, living in a small confined space, to pass the time, they might develop a quirky behavior like licking a certain spot on the cage. And it becomes this habitual behavior that the dog does as a way to pass time and to keep their brain active. So that would be a neuropath that you would definitely want to interrupt. So every time a dog starts doing an OCD type behavior like that, you would interrupt the behavior and ask the dog to do something else, to interrupt that neuropath and then with enough repetition, teach them a new one. So not only do you want Let me see if I've got this right. Not only do you want to interrupt the unwanted behavior, you want to give them a different task. You, I feel very strongly that it's, it's not as successful, but it's also not fair to just ask an animal to stop something without giving them a replacement. Give them somewhere for that outlet to go. They clearly have mental outlet that needs to be used and utilized. So if they're utilizing that on a negative behavior or one that is not so healthy for them, 
just asking them purely to stop that behavior isn't nearly as effective or fair as it would be to then say, instead of doing A, I would like for you to do B. And now you're giving them a mental outlet that's more appropriate and a way to utilize the mental energy that they have. So is the idea by giving them a different task that then they form a new neural pathway in the brain? I like to think of the analogy of a big green pasture that has got a walking path through the middle. There's this little brown line that's a walking path of dirt and you'll see cattle going out to pasture and coming in from, you know, from pasture and they all walk in a line and it creates this dirt path. And every time a behavior is repeated, it's as if that path has been walked again. So it just ingrains that path deeper. And the only way you're going to let the grass regrow in that space is by creating a new path. And that's really what you're doing by interrupting an old behavior. You're stopping the path being walked and you are asking the animal to walk a different path. And over time, over repetition, over and over again, conditioning, you then ingrain a new path in the pasture and you allow the grass to grow in the old one. I do have a question from a grandparent who's needing some advice. All of the dogs in different parts of their family are very sweet, but there are a lot of children and some small children. So her question was, what do you do to keep the dogs from taking the food out of the children's hands? So that's a tough one for a number of reasons in that we feed dogs from our hands all the time. That's how we train. We use food from our hands to reinforce behaviors. We use food from our hands even when we feed them with their bowl. It all comes from the hand. Uh, the other tough part about it is that it's a self-rewarding process because when the child does have food in their hand and the dog takes something out of it, it reinforces that taking good stuff comes from these little people's hands. Ah, so this goes back to the neural pathways because every time the dog gets food from the child, then it reinforces that behavior. Exactly. So it just reinforces that these little tiny people are in fact automatic food dispensers. <laughs> That's just the way it goes. Okay. And so it's a tough one. I honestly, in my house, it is if the children are walking around the house with food in their hands, they know that they might lose it. But what, what works better is to create a management system where you're asking the dog to perform a different task. Here again, interrupting the motor patterns, or interrupting that self-reinforcing process. I create a job description for my dogs in situations where the children are eating. So I have established go to your place in my house, which is go to your dog bed and stay there until you're released. So that requires a lot of repetition, a lot of training, a lot of practice, particularly when there's food involved from a source like a child. But with enough repetition, you get a reliable place command where my dogs will go and sit on their places and they know to stay there and the children are eating. And there you're one, redirecting the dog and, and giving them a more appropriate behavior to use to perform while the children are eating. And also you're, you're not allowing the behavior of taking stuff from the children's hands to happen. So you're essentially not allowing that neuropath to keep building. Now let's say the dog isn't very well trained and it's not going to go to its place and stay there. So what are some other ways that this could be managed? Simply removing the dog from the situation. 
setting up the dog for success. It's unrealistic to expect a dog to not want to take food from the hand of a small human that is in perfect height, that is walking around with stuff in their hand. It's, it's unrealistic. So I would suggest setting the dog up for success and just removing them. When it's time for the kids to eat, let them go and hang out outside or put them in a different room or get a baby gate and put them behind the baby gate. And that way you're just preventing that behavior from becoming a nuisance. So the rule in my house is when you eat, you sit at the table. If you get up from the table, it's a free fall. The dogs can take stuff from you. Okay. That's the rule. So that's a great rule that generally that trains the children then. If you value what you're eating, you're going to stay sitting. And when you're done, you can get up. And if you leave the table with your peanut butter and jelly sandwich in your hand and the dog grabs it, then too bad, so sad. Too bad, so sad. You learned a good lesson. So it's a win-win both ways. I've heard it said that there are no bad dogs, only bad dog owners, and there are no bad kids, but only bad parents. Now, I don't subscribe to this theory, but have you seen a dog with great human parents and then the dog has got bad behavior? I do not subscribe to the concept of no bad dogs, just bad dog owners. I believe that every dog is born with a core temperament, I do, however, believe that life experiences and um, ownership or owners can hinder or enhance those genetic predispositions. So I think it's a combination of both, but I have definitely seen situations where I have exceptionally dedicated dog owners that come in with really highly problematic dogs. Mm -hmm. And they're riddled with, riddled with guilt in that they have created these problems. And in so many cases, it's not that at all. In so many cases, their skilled, um, diligent, dedicated dog ownership has actually made a really troubled dog slightly better. Mm -hmm. But the fact that that dog is born with genetic predispositions, no amount of training, no amount of good dog ownership is going to change those genetic predispositions. And this leads me to another question that I think is very important to ask. Do you believe that dogs can have mental illness? Absolutely. Combinations of genetic predisposition and then life experiences like a trauma, like an abandonment, for example. If you have a dog that is genetically wired to be highly mentally sensitive, as well as being prone to anxiety, a dog like that then experiencing a traumatic experience like abandonment or being rehomed will absolutely create the perfect storm for a dog with anxiety and mental health issues. Do you think this is treatable or fixable? I think it's manageable. What's the difference? Difference is fixing would mean that you would have to go in and change the genetic blueprint, which is impossible. Managing is taking that blueprint and putting training systems, procedures, repetitions in place that would keep the anxiety to a minimum or as least possible for that dog and that dog's experiences and genetic blueprint. So what about medication like antidepressants or anti-anxiety? I have seen a lot of cases where antidepressants in conjunction with training have worked very well. 
I'm one of those cases. My dog is on an SSRI and CBD oil for anxiety, and it helps. It hasn't completely fixed her issues, though. It hasn't fixed it, but it absolutely, it gives the dog's brain the best opportunity to be able to receive and process training. I know you do a lot of work at local animal shelters. I'd love to hear a cool success story. Maybe the dog that had a traumatic experience, whether it was abuse, neglect, or a natural disaster. And then how did you work with that particular dog to reframe their outlook and behavior? One of my most memorable cases was a woman who came in with her mixed breed dog, must have been about 40 pounds, just a little mixed breed, that was suffering from severe separation anxiety. The dog could not be crated. They would break out of the crate, hurting themselves, breaking teeth, getting out of the crate. When the dog was loose in the house, it would scratch at doors, tear through walls. It had eaten itself through a wall out of a laundry room. At one point, I think it actually went through a plate glass window. And the backstory to this, this situation was the client drove the same route to work every day and for months would see a homeless person with this dog that was underweight, thin, but was, was with this homeless person. And for months and months, she drove the same route, saw the dog going to work, saw the dog coming back to work and was just heartbroken by the situation of, of the dog and finally one day stopped and um, said to the homeless person, I'll give you $50 for your dog. And she took the dog home and within weeks, the dog was completely destroying her house. Why? I would think it went from living on the streets, probably underfed and not necessarily the best of health and into the lap of luxury. So what was the reason behind it? That is, what this client thought as well. And the reality was that this dog, when living with a homeless person, had purpose. The dog was never on a leash, and yet it followed this person day in and day out. Wherever this person walked, most likely far distances every day, searching for morsels of food, and having a purpose in life to find a source of of food was really everything it, its its whole life and job was to do. And she now took this dog, put it in a perfect home environment where it had all the food it needed, but now did not have the exercise levels that it had. Oh. And had no purpose whatsoever. It had no job. And it didn't have its human all day. And it didn't have its human day in and day out, absolutely. Huge motivating factor. So now you isolate this dog without giving it a job, without giving it copious amounts of exercise, and being left alone all day for long periods of time. And the dog absolutely lost its mind. Did it get it back? It did. <laughs> Ever to the same degree, no. Never to the same degree, because she could never recreate that, in, that exact same environment. Okay. But management, so the dog then went on to medication. It ended up having a very routine exercise schedule, same time every day. It then had to work for its food. It no longer got fed out of a bowl. It's, it had to work for every morsel of food it had, and, and, and that was done through interactive toys. 
It also was done through Seeking Circuit Games, which releases dopamine into the system. So a Seeking Circuit Game is essentially hiding small amounts of food in different areas around the house so that the dog would have to sit and hunt for those morsels of food. And eating would now take two or three hours as opposed to putting the food down in a bowl and, and eating within a few minutes. So the combination of increased exercise, working for its food, and then we did things like leave the television on for background noise to hear voices and hear talking or talk radio, left talk radio on. And that in conjunction with adding medication definitely reduced the anxiety a large amount to the point where the dog could stay in the house and not hurt itself or destroy the environment. Uh, Kate, how long did this take, this process? This process took three to four months. Having the TV or the radio on, that is absolutely brilliant because if you think about the environment on the street, it's very noisy. Yes, an environment on the street, there's cars, there's people, there's activity, and there's a lot of background noise. So going from that to a a quiet house, being confined in a crate was just too much. So the dog didn't ever get confined in a crate afterwards. That experience, I think, was too traumatic to go back to. So background noise, talk television, talk radio, or the television playing, created background noise, and then medication, increasing the exercise, and having the dog work for food were the, the key pieces and becoming, you're getting to the point where the behavior was manageable. I love that story. Can you take a minute to explain about how you make a dog work for food instead of feeding it out of a bowl? So there's a Kong, there's also a a great interactive food dispensing toy called a Buster Cube. So toys like a Buster Cube, interactive food dispensing toys is how you would search for it. What they do is they work in such a way that it's a variable reward system. So you would then put the dog's kibble into this toy and the dog has to learn to maneuver the toy in different ways to get the toy to dispense food. And in some cases, the toy will fall in such a way that you know, one little tiny piece of kibble will fall out and the dog gets a, a small reward. Another time, the toy will fall in such a way that 10 or 20 pieces of kibble come tumbling out. So it's this variable reward system that keeps the dog hooked on the game. Ah, okay. and keeps them working to try and get the, the larger amounts of food to come out. You've been listening to Daring Parenting. My name is Lisa Henderson. I'm your host. And our guest today has been Kate Jackson, the founder of Jabula Dog Academy in Atlanta, Georgia. And we're going to follow up with part two. We'll be touching on how to use reward and consequences like you would in dog training, with your teenager. Also, have you ever wondered if our anxious behaviors or quirks end up being transmitted to our dogs? We know that children take on some of these characteristics, so Kate's going to address that in greater detail when we come back for part two of Daring Parenting with our guest, Kate Jackson of Jabula Dog Academy.